Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samba sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble and fully self-enlightened one. So I hope you didn't find the uh, uh, the um, change in tempo uh, too difficult from three quarters of an hour to an hour sitting and uh, a little bit of disturbance maybe, but uh, we can handle that, can't we? Truly. So um, <clears throat> if, you, if you hear a human voice, you see, there's also a meaning to what they say, but if you listen to it like bird song, it doesn't disturb. At least that's what I tell myself. Uh, what I want to do this evening is just um, go over this uh, Mahasi technique, the skills, what we're trying to do, uh, mainly because there are people here who are virtually absolute beginners, and just to pull it all together, really. And then at the end, if there's any questions arising, uh, we can answer them. I think it's important when you come on a retreat to make sure that you've got the right intention. So people come for various reasons, especially at the beginning. They might come to get rid of some sort of psychological pain, which has arisen either just of itself, they suddenly find themselves getting very anxious in life for no apparent reason, or depressed, or they come for, um, from a, a relationship that's... Uh, broken up or is breaking up or they lost their job um, all sorts of reasons why human misery should arise in our society and often uh, there's a search for sort of help um, and um, you know we've heard about meditation so we, we go to them uh, frankly this is what happened to myself <laughs> in sort of desperate times when um, I had no job uh, uh, my intended career had collapsed and my wife had the good sense to leave me. I ended up <laughs> going to a Zen uh, centre in... Well, I wrote, actually, to the Buddhist Society in London and said, um, I need to go to Japan to meditate. <laughs> they very kindly wrote back and said, don't go, and gave me 21 reasons why I shouldn't. <laughs> well, luckily, they pointed me to... Um, uh, a group that was being held in um, Birmingham. And uh, when I went along, there was a very... It was Zen, is, Zen can be very um, coldish, you know. And uh, Vajra greeted me and uh, just said hello. She led me upstairs and uh, plonked me against the wall. And I always remember her instruction, you see. When we come to all this, it's extraordinarily complicated... But her instruction to me was, sit here, watch whatever comes up. And that was it. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And by the end of this 45 minutes, even though it was really painful, I, I sort of grasped it. It was, it was quite a revelation to me. And uh, oh, within about six months, uh, or thereabouts, I was back on my feet. So... Um, in my terms, um, even though I went there with, should we say, an intention to get rid of psychological pain, uh, for some reason it worked for me at a spiritual level. And uh, the thing is that if we come with the intention of getting rid of psychological pain, then uh, it may help, but we'll sort of miss the spiritual point and that's one of, the, one of the problems of coming with a particular intention. And it's the same with physical pain. Um, people come to meditation to handle physical pain. And it's very helpful. But if we, if we make that your aim, then you might miss 
the, uh, the spiritual point of the practice. And uh, if, we're, if we're clear, if we, if we start off a meditation retreat and put all that to the side and have faith in the, uh, put our trust in the practice, then definitely the psychological part begins to heal itself. And although the physical part may not, at least we find a, an easier way of being with it. In the uh, Mahasi tradition, when, when he began teaching, there were all sorts of healings that went on through this practice. There's a, a booklet, a book of all these people who were healed one way or the other. Uh, perhaps the most dramatic was this cancer. Uh, a man turned up with this very... Um, terminal stage of cancer in his stomach uh, he got rid of all his medicines and uh, basically just sat with the pain and as he describes it there was an explosion in his stomach and it disappeared so we can say in this case the, uh, the illness was caused through a mental state not all illnesses are of course I mean he was lucky but in the, eventually of course he did die so it's not <laughs> you know you can't escape the facts of life through meditation. So um, it's important that although we might come with those um, motivations to get rid of psychological or physical pain or, or find a way of living with um, physical pain, um, in a sense it's best to just put them to one side and make the spiritual aims your main focus that way you get both the psychological benefits and the benefit of your of your spiritual practice so what is this spiritual primary what are we trying to do you see um, we're trying to uh, discover if you haven't discovered it before and then to maintain a way of looking a way of experiencing ourselves which is radically different from the way most people would do. So when we find this position within ourselves of uh, the objective observer, we've accessed a very privileged position within ourselves. It's like an observation post. And from that position, we can begin to just observe whatever is arising and passing away. And uh, it's understood from the Buddhist point of view that just to access that is, is enough. Is enough. The actual insights would come just by being able to access that point. So the whole of these practices, whatever practice you do, whether it's a Vipassana practice or a Zen or a Dzogchen, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, it's always really about finding this position within ourselves. And all these techniques are just really aids to get into that position and maintain it. See, our problem is that we can often get there, but we can't sort of hold the position. So the practice really demands constant repetition, and, um, or painfully constant repetition, and uh, constant devotion. So <clears throat> these practices that uh, the Mahasi devised, which are there within the commentarial tradition, uh, were, in a sense, specific to his own situation. It would seem that his teacher really didn't teach a particular form, but encouraged his students to discover their own way of uh, this insight. Another person, I believe, who began with him... Uh, I can't remember, I, I don't think I ever knew his name, but they say that he went on to develop a, a very different form. So one thing we have to remember is that the form is there to help us, but itself does not produce insight. What produces insight is this way of looking. Now, um, I've been saying all along that there are these two qualities to this um, way of looking. There's the sati and the panya. So in the seven factors of enlightenment, this sati is the governing quality. 
And it's just a matter of placing our attention. So these words are all sort of pointing to the same faculty. Mindfulness, attentiveness, attention, awareness. They're all sort of English words trying to grasp this level of consciousness. Hmm? Because most of our uh, consciousness in in our own culture uh, tends to be involved or uh, identified with some sort of mental attribute. It's either some sort of thinking, some sort of emotional uh, experience, some sort of physical experience, artistic, it's um, relation, relational, but uh, this, this level of consciousness whereby we can observe the, the psychophysical organism in action, uh, we don't seem to have a, a specific word for it. And um, even in uh, other languages like uh, Italian, you see, they, they don't seem to have a word for insight. So they actually use the English word insight, which is not a judgment on Italians, you understand. But it, it's funny how European, European languages don't have a way of expressing this particular way of looking. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there in the spiritual literature. Um, I think the word that was used is contemplation. But uh, contemplation now means to think, you see. So all these techniques are just trying to get us to be aware of what's happening within the body, mind and heart complex. Huh? And although we talk about these two sides, the awareness and the intuitive intelligence, it's all the same thing. One is passive and one is active. By looking, you actually perceive, right? The perception comes after the looking. Um, I had a a friend I met down here in Newton Abbey, actually. His car had broken down. And uh, we went to it and opened the bonnet and uh, he explained what had happened. And I, uh, because of my uh, background in mechanical engineering, I was able to tell him that it must be an electrical fault and it may be the distributor. Uh, the, um, yeah, the distributor. Uh, the AA man came along and... Um, pointed out that, in fact, it was the fan belt that had snapped. And then, in a very peculiar way, the distributor seemed to move position from one side of the engine to the other. And it was, <laughs> and it was this uh, clear understanding that I was coming from a position of delusion, whereas the AA man was coming from a position of knowledge. So, you see, even though you see, even though you're looking, you might not see in the correct way. So, when the Buddha points out these three characteristics, he's actually pointing our attention to observe certain, certain qualities which then bring about the end of our uh, delusive way of thinking. So, first of all, we have these various techniques. So, we have the noting technique. Now... Um, You see, it's not that you can look at something and not have a label. It may not be obvious to us. The mind may be silent. But we'll be looking at something from a particular point of view, whether we like it or not. We are, by our experience, prejudiced by that experience. Um, when When you eat an apple... You are approaching, you, you eat that apple with the history of all the apples you've eaten. And as soon as you taste it, you've already made a judgment about this apple. It's either not as good or it's the best one you've had. You can't distinguish this apple from all the other apples you've had. Now, in order to do that, your whole attention has to be on the apple you're actually eating. Even to the point where you lose the idea or the definition of apple. And then there comes a point where you just taste that apple. And that's a direct 
experience that you're having which is not being distorted or disguised by past experience. So by using the words, we're not doing anything which is not already happening within us. And what the word does is it stops this proliferation. Now at first the meditator may, may feel that it's a sort of um, a, uh, an interruption of the looking. It seems to be too loud. Um, and there's no doubt that there's the looking and there's the naming. In Buddhist psychology those are two consciousnesses. But it's happening normally anyway, but at this enormous speed where we think that things are happening at the same time. If you think about, uh, you know, when, when you go to the cinema, see, you're, you're, watching, you're watching the pictures, you're hearing the dialogue, the music, and you're eating your popcorn. And it all seems to be one and the same experience all happening at the same time. But in fact... In Buddhist psychology, you're zipping from one to the other at this enormous speed, creating the illusion of continuous, of, of, continue, of continued experience. See? So what we have to do is to actually slow the mind down in order to see this discontinuity. And the word at least keeps pointing the attention at the object, keeps making us look more and more clearly at what we're actually experiencing. And this word uh, can be any word which uh, you know, approximates what it is that you are experiencing. So some words are pretty simple. I mean, when you feel irritated by something, that's ir- irritation. But there are lots of things that come up in the body and mind for which, frankly, there are no words. They're very subtle feelings. Uh, subtle sensations, in which case any word will do. Feeling, um, thinking, just generic words will do. Uh, But your attention, remember, is always displaced on the actual experience of sensation and feeling. Um, when, uh, when, when you find yourself looking for something, as if you were searching a dictionary or something, then, in a sense, we've lost the plot, right? The idea is that you use any word just to keep the intellect occupied, and you're using it in order to keep the attention very, very directly on, on what it is you're experiencing. So, if, for instance, you have uh, pain, pain in the knee or something like that, which comes up from the sitting... Um, usually that's not a problem. I and mean, the great thing about pain is that it's definitely good for concentration. But <laughs> it's not a very good concentration, remember, because it's dependent on something very loud, very obvious. But even so, as you say pain, you see, <clears throat> the, pain, the word pain is like a background noting to which you're actually pushing the attention into the pain, making yourself feel the pain. So you have to be very careful that you're not actually using this noting to actually push yourself away from the pain, as though you're pushing stuff away. Same with uh, any emotional stuff that might come up which you find difficult, some grief, some, some, uh, some anxiety, whatever it is. Uh, there's a tendency to sort of move away from it. That's your aversion. And the noting word can be very subtly used to just keep it out there somewhere. And in which case, of course, you're, you're creating uh, a detachment. Uh, detachment is not the same as non-attachment. Right? These, these two words uh, show us that detaching from something is often a way of suppressing or repressing something, not looking at it, huh? not being available to it. But non-attachment is suggesting a particular relationship to it. So by, by uh, at first distancing ourselves, as it were, from whatever it is that's uh, painful through the word, you see, then, of course, you approach it, you go to it, you feel it fully, you open yourself up to it. So be careful about this uh, noting. Hmm? It's also uh, very useful to change your speed of noting depending on what's happening. So if you find your mind is racing a lot, 
note faster. See, then you're taking that energy from this thinking, 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 and you're putting it onto an object. If you're very still and you're very quiet, it can be a very quiet note in the background. Hmm? And you keep pushing that attention, placing that attention, just on what it is that you're experiencing. So you have to play around with these techniques to see what works for you. But the, um, the noting is, generally speaking, a very powerful way of uh, developing this attentiveness. There does come a time, and you may, you may reach that towards the end of the week, when you, can, you feel confident to drop the noting and just stay with the direct experience. But uh, generally speaking, uh, people stop too quick. Uh, the attention is not all that fixed. And then, of course, you get this, the mind shoots off. And for us, that's rather dangerous because normally... Um, as you go through the week, the power of your concentration is growing. That's an energy. And if that energy is let out through this inadvertent thought, it just grasps it. You'll, you'll go off for a day. You'll be in Acapulco for a whole day. It is absolutely useless. So be very careful uh, as you progress through the week that you just keep relaxing into the present moment. Mm, just keep relaxing so that this uh, it's, not, it's not that you're trying to force the concentration so if you do that you start forcing the process then it adds an extra energy to it and uh, the danger is that when it leaks out when it spins out it takes quite a while to get it back so always begin from the position of being quite relaxed knowing you're relaxed and then inviting the curiosity, the investigation. Hmm? And just keep using those words to keep your attention steady. And the other thing is that, um, you know, getting rid of this sense of hierarchy, that uh, sitting is more important than walking and so on. Especially in daily practice, you see, we tend to practice hard when we're on the cushion, we put some energy into it when we're doing walking, but when we're going here to the dining room, the mind's already in the dining room, right? Your legs are over here and your mind's over there. So be very careful that you keep bringing yourself back. There's an objective. I don't know. Aim and objective. There's an aim of getting to the dining room, but your objective is to stay with your, with your footsteps. And uh, <clears throat> if, you, if you can just relax into the present moment like that, and I really... It's the relaxing which is important, see, relaxing into the present moment. And just gently maintaining a moment-to-moment awareness. This uh, concentration builds up quite naturally, so you don't have to work at it. Now, while I'm on the question of uh, concentration, there's a question on the board there about samatha practice. So there are these two practices. One is to do with samatha, we call samatha, and the other one to do with vipassana. The samatha practice is about developing states of mind. That's all it is. So when you do the metta, the practice of loving kindness, you're developing this goodwill within yourself and developing it into uh, a deeper, deeper feeling. Um, And as it deepens... It's as though you go into the experience and you absorb into it. And the deeper you absorb, the more delightful it becomes. Right? So those practices, the Buddha said, were very good for us because they increase the purity of the mind. You're actually putting very good energy into the mind and it increases your concentration and so on. But in itself can't bring along any insight simply because there's no curiosity about the three the three characteristics. It's as simple as that. But of course it is of a, a, of a great help because when the curiosity awakens it has this backing of the concentration. Some people find it, uh, well it's quite rare actually, <laughs> some people find it easy to develop that sort of concentration. But uh, uh, most of us are sort of struggling with just keeping the mind still, their mind <laughs> trying to develop strong concentration and uh, if in your practice see uh, you know at the beginning when you when you sit 
the instruction is to experience the pleasantness of the neutral sensations. So you're, you're, you're putting your attention on the breath and you're beginning to experience it as pleasant neutral sensations. See? So you're not investigating, right? You're just there, as it were, experiencing the pleasantness of these neutral sensations. And if you keep doing that, you see, it brings the mind into a state of pleasantness. It's in that way that you can begin to develop your samadhi, you see? And then at any time, you can just turn on the investigation, which is to see the beginning and the ending of the breath, to be more aware of that. And that awakens this uh, um, curiosity, or it awakens this uh, discrimination, which is to do with impermanence, see? And then as things come up, this intuitive intelligence has been activated, now, if you lose it during your sitting, remember, you can always start again. So you just start again. Go back to the breath and get in touch with it as pleasant, neutral sensations and just bring yourself back to that calmness. So you don't get, don't get stuck on a, you know, don't, don't go at something like a bull, you see. And it's the same with uh, walking. So in your walking meditation, you can do it just to create pleasantness, just to be at ease. And then when you've got that ease, to begin to slow down and to observe the quality of impermanence in the footstep, to discriminate between the feelings of the rising as opposed to the moving as opposed to the falling. Yeah, to try and just discriminate between those things. By the way, if, you've got a, if you haven't got a very good balance, then just find a wall and you can <laughs> and sort of lean against it and, and keep going that way. So, um, this uh, noting technique is very useful to keeping our mind just steady on what we're doing. We can vary the pace of it. And we can bring that sense of continuous awareness, continuous moment-to-moment awareness, uh, throughout the day by taking it into all our daily activities. The other thing we have to be careful of as we go along with this noting is that it does become habitual. And with habit, it becomes slightly lazy. And we can train the mind to do all sorts of things. So often you may find that your mind has wandered off somewhere, thinking about something. But when you come back, you can hear yourself saying, rising, falling, (laughs) and it's been going on in the background. So this is an awakener for us to know that, aye, aye. You know, it's like I've got it all off pat, and I've, I've just let myself wander. So uh, be careful of that. And uh, it's, uh, it's a sort of lack of determination, a lack of really uh, committing ourselves to, the, to, the, to this noting. So the noting has to be deliberate. Yeah? It's like you're showing something, you're showing somebody something. Like if you're pointing out something to somebody, say uh, like around here you might be pointing out a bird, a bird that's turned up, the great spotted woodpecker or something. And you say, look, there's a woodpecker. You're actually pointing to it. So it has to be, it has to be quite a deliberate action. Otherwise, it becomes just a, a sort of a lazy background noting. So be careful of that. The next thing is to um, try to be, you know, as we go through the week, I'm afraid I keep saying these things so you won't forget, uh, is to become more and more aware of our intentions. Intention in Buddhist psychology is the beginning of your conditioning. So it's at the point of intention that we have choice. Of It's a sort of choice. Um, when an intention arises, you see, you've got that moment of deciding whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. If you lose that moment and it's empowered, you either reinforce some old habit or you start a new one. And you have to be very careful 
uh, with intentions, especially in, your, in, your, in a practice like this on a week's retreat, because if you empower the wrong intention, then, of course, it, uh, it, has, it can have quite an effect on you. So, for instance, um, over the next couple of days, um, the, whatever sleep imbalance you might have had, and I'm presuming you've had good sleep for the past three days, uh, should have passed, really, so that when we come across tiredness during the day, be very careful not to label it as tiredness. See, if you do, if you do, you may be reinforcing the old habit of seeking happiness in sleep, and you just you just find yourself sleeping all the time. So uh, this the the intention, remember, is at the point before empowerment. So it's not had an effect. Huh? It's only when it moves into an action, an action of thought, uh, a flow of thoughts or a flow of words, or, a, or an actual set of actions that you're actually uh, conditioning yourself. So long as it remains as just a desire, as an intention, then it doesn't have this effect. It's not a, we say, a karma. It's not an action. Hmm? So try to bring uh, you know, to mind all the little points of the day where you actually have to make an intention. And if you bring it down to even things that aren't, uh, you know, that they're just simple actions like opening a door. So if you stand in front of a door, you see, just note your intention to act. By saying intending to act, that's noting the intention. I don't, uh, these intentions aren't huge sort of emotional compulsions. They're just, they're just movements in the mind saying intending to open the door. And then, you know, be with your hand, see, moving, moving, moving. As you touch the handle, touching. As you push the handle down, you see, pushing, pushing. And you're communicating with that handle. You're actually feeling the springs, that like you're not putting any extra energy into it. And then, and then pulling, pulling, or pushing, whatever, whichever way the door opens. And so you, you take yourself through the door, see. And if you can find... Uh, those things that you do continuously during the day uh, and make that a point of doing it very slowly. So um, going in and out of your room is a specific point where you can actually do this thing very slowly. Going downstairs, coming up the stairs, you give yourself plenty of time to to really uh, slow everything down and to note your intention before you do something. If, by any chance, you found yourself rushing, don't forget, just stop and go back to where you were. That's a very good practice, you know, like doing your corrections at school and make yourself, <laughs> make yourself start again. You'd be surprised. That's a real good conditioning, that is. It really does recondition you. I wouldn't suggest you do that at meal times. The other thing about noting our intentions is it really does bring you into the present because to note an intention you have to stop. And that's one of these lovely little words that we can keep saying to ourselves. You just stop. Whenever you make an intention, the intention has to come to an end. So if you open the door, passing into the room, once you're in the room, stop. See? And just wait for the next intention to arise. When, you're, uh, when you've got your food, when, when you're in the dining room and you've got your food and you put it on the table in front of you, stop. Let the intention arise, see? The more you can just bring, bring, uh, bring as many actions as you can think of to a stop, you can see the next intention arise, you see? And this is, uh, we'll talk about it more at the end of the week, but this is a really powerful little um, technique to take in daily life. So that you don't get this this sort of um, roller coaster of emotions and actions. See, so here we're, everything we're doing here we can take into daily life. I mean, apart from uh, noting, you don't want to be noting lifting, moving, placing when you're crossing a road. It <laughs> could be a disaster. 
And finally, uh, this business of going slow. So remember, the, uh, the slowness needn't be always dead slow all day, but try and find times when you really, really, really go slow. I mean, obviously there's one when you are walking meditation, there's also eating the, more, the, the slower you go when you're eating, the more you'll see, the more you'll be able to deconstruct that event. Um, and even, you know, even doing small things, um, you know, can be of great help, like that opening of the door. And uh, if you feel any compulsiveness, you see, just stop. Wait for, that, wait for that extra energy to just die away. Just be aware of the extra energy that we put in things which is really coming from old habits of rushing, uh, sort of just compulsive behavior, really. So um, uh, that, that sort of, um, it's like a feedback to the mind, you see. Every time you rush and you come back and you stop, and then you go slow again, you get this slow sort of reconditioning of the way that we're behaving. It doesn't take that much effort. And it's, uh, as I say, the trick is more to do with relaxing, just relaxing in the present moment, just coming to a stop. Don't forget the importance of repetition, you see. Um, Try, if you can, during the week. Uh, I mean, the schedule helps you, but you're doing the same thing every day, see, so that you take away choice, so that you don't... Um, you don't decide what you're going to do at any time. It's always the same thing every day. So that your attention can be in just the doing. See? Choice presents us with um, uh, with a sort of um, what's it a disturbance in the mind. Because once you have a choice, you have to think what you're going to do. See, And we want to take that away in order to actually see the process that we're actually going through. Every time you give yourself a choice, there's a, there's a sort of mm, agitation. Yeah? If you, um, you see, like, for instance, I mean, I wear these robes. It never really occurs to me in the morning to wake up and say, well, today I'll wear blue. <laughs> see, I mean, <laughs> it's like a lot of choices are taken out of my life, and it just makes it very simple, see? So here, really try to get into a rhythm of the day where you're taking away choice, you see. And that means that you can really concentrate on exactly what you're doing. And it's the repetition which makes us go deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the same with, um, you know, whether we're practicing uh, an instrument, you know, playing a piano, or whether we, whether we do a sport. The more you keep practicing the same... Uh, stroke or the same uh, piece, the better you get at it. So the more we can take away this sense of choice as to what we're doing, like now it's time to eat, now it's time to sit, now it's time to do walking meditation, then you find that you, you, the mind will become very still. It's not agitated by, no, what am I going to do now, is it? So uh, try and get into a rhythm of the day that you feel you can keep. When it comes to the walking meditation, the more you can do of it, the better. It has to balance the sitting. If you do too much sitting, you'll find that uh, your mind really becomes very sloppy. It does need the walking to sort of balance the practice of insight. And uh, I think we skip on it. You know, like uh, every time it's walking meditation, make a beeline for the tea. (laughs) That's that's 20 minutes. And then... (laughs) And then you've got to wash the cup. And then you might do a few up and down. And then you're back in the meditation hall. But, but the idea is that you, you move from the meditation hall directly to the sitting. And you, you know, I mean, if you're going to have a drink, then drink water. Something like that. But don't, don't turn it into a great ritual. And uh, what, we, what should happen is that um, the, the walking allows us to build up a real moment-to-moment awareness, which, when we come back into the sitting, stays with us. See? Walking meditation is very good for concentration, for steadiness of attention, because it's A, neutral, which means that 
the steadiness of attention is not dependent on something exciting. It's easy enough to concentrate, you know, on a film or something, but to concentrate on on neutral sensations of a foot lifting up, <laughs> moving through the air and, and going down to the ground, which no sane person would normally do, is very good for developing just the stillness of attention, simply because it's not dependent on that. It becomes a quality within the mind itself. And, uh, you know, you have to keep doing it. It's, it's the sort of repetition of these things that builds up that that power, that energy within the mind. So during the week, just see if you can extend your walking meditation a bit, you know, from whatever you're doing now. It might, you might only be doing 20 minutes in the hour. So you try and extend it till, till actually you're doing almost a full hour of uh, walking meditation. And then come into your sitting with that. And uh, there are spaces here, you see, uh, for those of you who don't want to, who want to actually enclose your mind, sort of stop it wandering, uh, there's space here in, in between times, in the walking period, when you can stay within the hall. In the East, they don't have a walking hall and a meditation hall. They, they have a, it's all sort of one. And um, they have a different concept, really, about silence. Um, it's a case of, well, if you want to keep silent, that's fine. I won't talk to you. But I can do a song and dance over here. And it, <laughs> that's, none of, that's none of your business. So often, uh, you know, I'd be sitting here, you see, and somebody do walking meditation right here in front of me. See, <laughs> up and down. <laughs> so it's a case of uh, not to be too concerned about, about noise. You see, it's all, it's all just something that's arising and passing away. But here... Uh, there's plenty of space, and uh, there's the walking hall which is close by. And uh, as you as your practice deepens, you know, take that uh, particular training rule of non-entertainment more and more seriously, whereby you're not looking around, you're not uh, getting interested in the outside world as such, but also but only in the inside world. That you're not actually looking at people. So that you're catching their eyes, you know, almost almost going around like a like a ghost. And in this way, you'll find that your the uh, your perception of what's happening within your own psyche becomes very sharp. You can really see these movements. And remember that the purpose of that is to uh, is because the more we see, the more we liberate ourselves from wrong understanding. And remember, this has a systemic effect over time because it begins to change our attitude. But uh, that effort of really seeing things in a very minute way is, uh, comes about by just turning that whole attention inward into what's happening within, the, within this psychophysical organism. Yeah? And uh, the final thing, I suppose, is uh, many, some of you, anyway, have done various techniques. So uh, be careful you don't uh, mix it in terms of um, uh, sort of escaping things. You know, like um, uh, you're watching the breath of the abdomen and, 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 you, and a bit of boredom comes in. I'm fed up with this. I'll watch it out the nose. <laughs> And that sort of, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't achieve anything actually, it just achieves more and more restlessness. But those of you who have done other techniques, then, you know, uh, use them as skillfully as you can. But the general thing is not to mix, but to stay quite close to, this, to, the, to the particular technique that's being taught. In that way you don't confuse yourself. And um, you won't confuse me either. Okay. <laughs> In an interview of having problems, and it's because you're doing a different technique, and can be a bit, a bit confusing for me. So I think that's uh, that's all I have to say in terms of uh, just pulling this whole thing together. Have any questions arisen? Any confusions? No. No, it isn't, you see. And in, intention here is being used in the sense of a wish. 
It's not, uh, uh, unfortunately in English, uh, it has that dual meaning. You intended to do it, meaning you, you did empower it. You did actually make a decision. Uh, but intention, the way I'm using it here, is the same as a desire. Oh, it's a bit confusing, that. An intentioned intention would be a decision. Whatever. That's it. It's just that you haven't done anything. See? It's just the risen in the mind intending to open the door. See, nothing's happened. There's just that, that idea which has the flavor of desire attached to it. Well, it's at that point you can see whether it's skillful or not. And then, uh, hopefully, you'll only empower those things that are skillful. So that's, that's why, ultimately, we don't really have a choice. Because the path is only one way. Now, thinking about two scenarios, one say you're in your samatha meditation your anchor, which is the breath and resistance, so belly breathing, and you reach samadhi and you're there. So then you can start examining the breath and what's happening there, looking at the ephemerality of the breath, the sustenance of the eggs, and what's things around that, examining that. But also, you could potentially just sit there, you know, feel what's happening, and suddenly an idea pops into your head and you feel fear in your stomach. So you, you go off and you can quickly examine that. Yeah, then come back to the breath again. Or other instances possibly stuff arises and you decide labels, so you label, so label that one, this one. So it's kind of a small fleet of instances. So it's all of that, all of that would actually be part of the practice. So yeah. maybe it's sometimes it's just an emotion. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As long as, as long as, when you say feel it, at the root of it, <clears throat> that you mean the actual feeling, the, the actual feeling of fear. Yeah. Mm, very much so. Yes. Um, uh, vipassana doesn't have a, a steady object. See, samatha does because you're trying to develop a mental state around a particular object. But vipassana is very loose. You see. So whatever draws your attention, that's the object to contact, to observe, to feel, to experience. It's not a choice. It's whatever is arising that draws your attention is what it is that you are investigating. Anywhere. It can be anywhere. And um, although we talk about these three characteristics... Um, we can actually make one of them a purposeful thing. Like we can, we can begin our sitting to say, well, during this meditation, I'm going to be much more aware of the impermanent nature of things. That's all right. You can give yourself that sort of intention. Uh, often that's good to raise interest. So each time you actually examine each one of the characteristics, this is an exercise. You can do that, yeah. You can do that. Uh, but eventually... Um, you know, one puts that away and just observes because it's as though this intelligence has been primed, so we don't have to. But occasionally when, we, when it's flagging or when it's down, we can cajole ourselves by giving ourselves a little task. The word samadhi is actually a technical word which is to do with the absorptions more than anything else. Um, and we can go into that in more detail towards the end of the week. But uh, you can get the same strength of concentration through Vipassana. See? It's just that it's not stuck on the object, that's all. So if you get in a space where you're just happy being there... Ah, yes. Nothing arises there. Yeah, that's, then, then you see, just being happy being there... Is, um, is what you might call sati, 
just awareness, yeah? But nothing ever happens because there's no... The intelligence isn't being sparked. There's no curiosity. So often you'll get... Uh, you might find a meditator who sees absolutely perfectly. You think, you think oh, that's wonderful. You know? But nothing's going on. <laughs> it's just sati. So there has to be... In the seven factors of enlightenment, you see, there's this piti, this interest. And it's the seventh one is the investigation of the Dharma. See? So remember, that's not an intellectual investigation, but there has to be that wanting to know, or else you don't get to know anything. Simple as that. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, well, that's what I say. That's, you know, where, where you're just, as it were, spaced out. Yeah, yeah well, that's lovely, you see, isn't it? Yeah, but nothing's happening. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a problem, you know. Sometimes it's good to rest in that for a while, you know, and then just raise the interest again. Yeah, the Buddha wouldn't say that was particularly harmful unless you thought that, unless you mistakenly thought that those states were actually states of enlightenment. And that's the problem. Sometimes when you try to put these notes on uh, feelings or things that arise, just they're a bit too complicated just to find one word. Mm. You start trying to think of you know, mm. a way of articulating it, and everything kind of, kind of grinds ground, to a halt. Yes. No, use very simple words. I mean, eventually there's only feeling and thinking. And then, you know, these words are only there to, as it were, keep the intellect happy at this point. And you put your attention entirely upon what it is you're experiencing. So don't pause too much. Don't pause. <laughs> just let it keep going. And if, if, if a word doesn't come up, just, you know. Now what I'm hoping is that as the week continues, you know all your words because you're doing always the same thing. <laughs> you're always opening doors and closing doors. You're always eating. Not always eating, but eating comes up during the day and then, and then of course our emotional life tends to be much the same after a while there's nothing comes up that really surprises you there's always some depression some excitement some anxiety it's not this no no you always stay with what's with what's drawing your attention Oh, well, if, if, it depends. If um, there's a danger of going off um, if you're not using these noting words to keep yourself right in the feeling. See? But don't be, don't be concerned about that because that's just the habitual conditioning of the mind. So as soon as you find yourself, you know, you've gone off somewhere, just note what the process is. Are you worried? Are you planning? See, what are you doing? And then just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. That's good practice. No, to the presenting feeling. The excitement, the anxiety, whatever it is. Mm. No, if you, don't, if you don't come back to it, then of course this energy is still working and that's why you keep suiting off. You've got to let the energy out through the body. Yeah, that's right. Until, well, either until it fades away so much that it's no longer, shall we say, strong enough to attract your attention, or until it fades away. And then back to the breath. If you don't do that, you see, then uh, this turbulence will remain somewhere in the system. And it, it'll just be so strong, you just keep shooting off somewhere. It might do that anyway, because it's so strong and the habit is so strong. In which case, it's just patient, you just keep coming back, just keep coming back. See, What you don't do is make an active act of will, a conscious act of will to go there. So if you say to yourself... So you're planning this holiday to, uh, well, Acapulco. I must get there one day. And, he's, uh, 
Yeah, I've got to say anything. Well, actually, I have a, an old friend of mine. He, he used to do, um, his way back, he used to do these six-month retreats, and then it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, he never got very far. So, <laughs> so I remember him telling me on one retreat, his, his mind just went. He just planned and planned and planned this holiday to South America. See? And what happens is you, you, you let it out and you're very subtly actually rein, you're very subtly saying to yourself, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just think about that a little bit. <laughs> you're not making a firm decision to stay with the breath. It's very, and it's sort of a subtle thing. You don't, it's not a fully conscious. You're not saying, right, now I'm going to think about South America. So you don't say that, you see. It's just, it's over there, and then you come back, oh, yes, planning, planning, and you come back, and you go there, <laughs> Before you know it, of course, you, 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 you've been around South America 100,000 times. <laughs> you never went, by the way. Jeez. Yeah, well, that's that's also true. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, in the opposite state, where you stay with breathing and things don't pop into your head, how do you move beyond that? Oh no, you'd have to move beyond everything. You, the whole of the process of liberation can be achieved by just watching the breath. Because right there, the breath, you will see the three characteristics. Specifically, the, the, uh, the um, impermanence of it and the not-self, because the breath is breathing. You're not breathing the breath, the body just breathes. So any of these characteristics will take you to the end of suffering. Mm. They're all connected, you see. When you see impermanence, you see that attachment to anything with the idea of permanence causes suffering. When you see something that's impermanent, you, it can't be substantial. Therefore, it can't be a self or anything like that. Um, about this third characteristic, no self, um, I try to find it. But, I mean, it's, I, I think it's the most difficult characteristic. I mean, from my personal point. I mean, because uh, when I'm you know, watching the thoughts or noting the thoughts or whatever, I think, well, okay... So there's this awareness, watching the sensations, you know, thoughts arising. But then I think again, okay, what's this awareness? You know, sort of like back and forth, sort of, you know, and like, and sort of everything manifests, so it's something, you know. I, I can't sort of find the emptiness of those. You know? Well, um, when you, uh, the not-self is basically uh, a teaching tool whereby you are experiencing something as not me, not mine, because for the start you don't have control over it. Yeah. So an emotion arises, you're aware of it, and, and then it hangs around a bit and passes away. If you didn't ask for it, see, it stays whether you want it or not, and it passes whether you want it to do or not. Yeah, that's true. That observer is your, um, it's the, what we might call, it's the final thing that you construct. Now, you can't get rid of that. The self cannot get rid of the self. Eh? So the only way you can bypass it is exactly what the Buddha says, is just keep putting your attention on the object. And every so often, the sense of the observer disappears. And there are moments when the knowing, the known, and the act of knowing become one experience. See? At that point, we're experiencing no self. But it just takes a little practice. Yeah. <laughs> but it comes in little blips and blobs. Uh, it's easier when you're working. Now, during your working period, you see, uh, enter into it with the right intention... So your intention is for the benefit of yourself and others. And you do the work calmly. Um, and you're putting your whole attention into what you're doing. And you may find that, uh, even, in, even in ordinary daily life, that there's a, a time passes where you're not aware of yourself doing what you were doing. And there was no sense of time. 
So that's a non-self experience. So you don't realize it at that moment? No, you can't. No, you never know when you're... Um, you, at that point, you're in a state of actual bliss. It's not an emotional state. It's actual bliss. And you never know you're there. You only know when you've been there. It's one of these awful paradoxes. You never know when you're happy. You only know when you've been happy. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, this is easily confused with the absorption you get from indulgence. So you can go to a film with the pure intention of just enjoying the film in that sort of very indulgent way, you know, like a, like a cowboy film or something. <laughs> and um, you'll experience the same thing, but unfortunately, because it's got this kink of self-indulgence, it produces an attachment to cowboy films. And you can't be happy unless... You're watching a cowboy film. <laughs> See, that's, what, that's the equation you have to get rid of. That's the part of the equation you have to get rid of. This dependency, this, this, um, the fact that our happiness is dependent on something which is phenomenal, arising and passing away. So, so when you're doing your working your working. Uh, a practice, that's a really good time to just put your attention on what you're doing from uh, that skillful intention. Mm. And during your working period, by the way, work at a normal speed. Yeah? Or else sometimes we get confused. We think we're only meditating when we're going as slow as snails. <laughs> but it's nothing to do with speed. What do you mean, whether you should watch the emotion or the, men, or the physical state? Well, it's like, it's, it seems to me there's a difference between a, uh, when I've been sitting quietly in an emotion, say, anger or something arises in our mind and body, mm. but I'm only just dully, dully sensing it, mm. that's pretty quick. Okay. Or it could be like, where I've got a discomfort, say, in my leg from sitting, mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, they're two separate things in the sense that one sensation, set of sensations is coming from the body and the other one's coming from the mind. But in terms of um, the, the process of liberation, all we're, we're concerned with is to see that, feel that, but acknowledge our relationship to it. Whether there's any aversion there or whether we've actually got an equanimity with it. We're not trying to do anything with these things, that's all. And remember that when it comes to pain, you're not trying to defeat it. You're not trying to get the better of it. Yeah? You won't win. <laughs> you just take it. As soon as you stop learning from a particular physical pain or emotional pain, it's best to leave it. Go for a walk or do something. Come back to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The emotions, uh, mental, mental feelings come out through the body and affect the, the physical base. Sometimes in good, uh, good insight you can see that the emotion is a finer form of energy than the physical mirror that it's creating within the body. And by doing that you can really see that how you can get psychosomatic diseases but you just stay with it, that's all. See? And as I say, if things get a bit too tough, if you feel you can't sort of do the investigation, if it's, if it's becoming overbearing, then it's just best just to go for a walk. Can you explain that? Because I'm not sure I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, you just feel the tension. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, a lot of people get things like neck ache or shoulder ache in meditation because the muscles are holding something. And as you relax, they, it's, it's the pain of release, really. Some people get headaches, nausea. So you just, you just go into it, just feel it, just let it be. Yeah, um, can you leave that question for the weekend? Sure. If you write it on the board, we won't forget it. <laughs> yes? Um, I often find that rather than like an emotion dropping down from my body, it's, it's just kind of there in my body. But I'm feeling a feeling, I'm not really sure where it's come from. It's not really linked to like, my mind, it's, it's just like it's already sitting there. No, I, w- I would say that's how it is. And what the emotion does is it's seeking expression. And, and it finds expression through the mind. And then from the mind into uh, speech and action. It's stuck in the body, yeah. yeah. That's good, actually. And then just stay with it as a feeling in the body. Um, and don't guess what it is. Yeah? A felt emotion is really on at the heart level. This is where you can really feel it. But you might feel, so we say, a tension in the, in the abdomen or stomach. And you might say to yourself, oh, this is anxiety. You may be intuitively right, but you may be intuitively wrong. <laughs> and it's because part of us doesn't perhaps want to face it or it's, it's labelled something which it can handle. But it may be enormous grief. See? It may be enormous anger. But it creates the similar sort of feelings in the stomach. But anxiety is sort of acceptable. And it's just a subtle way of suppressing stuff. So stay with the raw feeling of an emotion or of, a, of, a, of, a, of anything which comes up in the body. Stay at it at the level of raw feeling. Yeah, use the noting words which describe what it is you're feeling, not what you think it is. <laughs> 